So if you need any help with your memoir services, I've started to help clients out. I do anything from full manuscript assessment for a flat fee. I do developmental editing for a page-by-page fee, and I do copy editing for another page-by-page fee. Uh, Please find any and all my services at casejohnson.com, or you can find me on Readsy where I have an editor's account there as well. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This episode of Literally is sponsored by Lexicon and Line. Case, tell us a little something about Lexicon and Line. Uh, Lexicon and Line does three things. They, they are com- communications consultants. They teach professional business writing and speaking courses, and they are research and data evaluation experts. And you can find everything about Lexicon Online at lexicononline.com. Please give them a visit. And thank you so much for sponsoring this podcast, Lexicon and Line. This is Case Johnson. This is the Literally Podcast. Today we're broadcasting from the Monarch in Banyan 1 on Historic 25th Street in Ogden, Utah. Our guest today is Paisley Rechtel, and we are talking about her book, Appropriate a Provocation, recently released by, by Norton. Paisley Rechtel is the author of 10 books of poetry and nonfiction, a former recipient of the Guggenheim and NEA fellowships. She's a distinguished professor of English at the University of Utah and is the state's poet laureate. She lives in Salt Lake City. And so, and just what I saw the other day is you will be the poet laureate for another, for another year, correct? That is correct. One more year. Yeah. Um, can, I mean, <laughs> can you, can you, I mean, before we jump in though, um, can you talk about that a bit with probably with the whole year of COVID and how that decision was made and the way you're looking at it with, with an extra year? Well, um, yeah. So, uh, the fact that I am still on as poet laureate is an accident of COVID. Um, what happened was somebody who was supposed to sign the paperwork to switch out and get a new poet laureate. And I think that they didn't get it in on time because everyone was really busy doing other things like say, trying to save people's lives and save the state. So I was very low down on the list of priorities to like move me out. Um, So they just said, hey, you want to do this another year? And I said, oh, okay. Um, So the kind of good news and bad news about COVID for me as poet laureate, obviously, was that I wasn't able to get into schools and um, do the workshops, which is one of the things that I really loved doing. I really loved um, talking to students and getting them excited about poetry. But the upside, which is a surprising one, is I took the Utah Poetry Festival online and we had a tremendous number of people who registered. Each event had over 100 people register. Um, you know, not that many people always showed up but we probably reached more people and across the actual entire country um, than we would have if we had done it in person. So next year, I'm gonna be doing something um, that that is a hybrid between the virtual and the in-person. And I'm thinking about doing a sort of poet laureate tour um, during April and hosting some open mic night, you know, local poetry celebrations around the state so that there's like an in-person thing and people can come out and celebrate and, you know, cheer on their poets and their regions. And then do, you know, an, a virtual series of talks around publishing and maybe book arts making stuff, you know, poetry outside of English, you know, make those available to the public in general um, online. So I'm actually kind of excited. Yeah, it's that's that's I mean, it's great. And I think we've seen this in other venues, too, especially with the arts that COVID really pushed us into kind of this this really quick look into the technological age of distributing. Well, especially literary arts, which, um, you know, we tend as literary artists to not get top shelf in a lot of ways because we don't you can't see what we're doing. You can't see us like visual arts and you can't see as like photography um and so i think with with covid i mean we saw this with the arts fest and you know we did that with daniel susie uh with dinner view um with the arts fest pushed us to go online more and i think it's a positive thing and to try to create a year-long presence with it instead of just that three-day that three-day experience exactly um yeah so i'm yeah. um and just a note for for a lot of you um uh uh, Paisley's major project for the poet laureate position was the Mapping Literary Utah that just turned out spectacularly. Um, and I think that 
a lot of, I know the Utah Arts Fest itself, just working with them, are going to try to mimic it in a way to kind of cluster artists together. And so we may be reaching out to you for that too, uh, to kind of give us Happy some, yeah, g- yeah, give yeah. us a, kind of give us a heads up on, you know, clustering and kind of, it was, it's a great project. If you haven't checked it out, please go online and look at it. It, it it's, uh, it maps so many literary artists across the state and it gives a, an opportunity to sh- see them in one place and, in, in, um, in one database. So please go check it out. It's a, it's a great piece of work. All right. We are going to get to the book though. So, um, so appropriate. I, 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 I said this to Paisley in the email, but this is one of the best books I feel that I've read in years. And for that reason, for reasons that it's, it challenged me a lot. It challenged me, um, in my thought process, in what I thought I believed, um, and kind of expanded, completely expanded my view of the subject matter. Um, and so today I'm going to let Paisley introduce the book herself, um, and then read from it or in, intro into it. Um, and then we'll come back and do some questions, but, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for the comments too. I really appreciate that. So appropriate or appropriate, uh, depends on how you want to say it is a book about cultural appropriation, what we think we need when we talk about appropriation in the arts, specifically in the literary arts, though I have a whole chapter devoted specifically to pop culture examples and uh, even artistic examples um, as well, and music and the visual arts to sort of give us shorthand about what ways in which appropriation is part of our daily artistic practice, but also our cultural life. I also spend some time talking about what we think we mean when we're talking about authentic racial identities, what a racial identity actually consists of and what it doesn't consist of, um, ethnic identities, what those are, what those aren't necessarily. Um, And then I look at sort of the good, the bad, the ugly um, in literature in the last couple of centuries. I, I, I spend some time thinking about why is it some works of art Uh, pass under our radar or we celebrate them and they are completely appropriative and others really get under our skin and infuriate us. Um, What is it, what does it mean to successfully appropriate or approximate um, the identity of somebody very much unlike ourselves in literature? Um, What does that mean for us as creative artists, but also what does that mean historically for us as sort of global members of a community (laughs) that have sometimes um, been subject to some pretty horrific, um, you know, colonial and racist practices. So I try to, you know, pick apart some of the complexities that, you know, fall into the question around cultural appropriation so that, you know, the average literate reader can start to say, oh, okay, well, these are appropriative practices that I'm engaged in. So, you know, how do I distinguish between these that maybe are acceptable and maybe I even encourage other artists and students and myself to do versus things that are really truly culturally appropriative, which I think of as exploitative. Like mm-hmm. what does that line look like and how do we how do we navigate it? So I'm gonna read a couple of pages from this, just the very first chapter will give you a sense of the book and then I'll talk about how I landed on this format and what was going on there. This is from the very first chapter. Dear X, You asked at the end of last class whether I had an essay I might share with you about cultural appropriation. You asked because of the tense note on which our workshop ended the discussion of your poem, a monologue in the voice of a black nurse who worked in your white grandmother's home in Georgia. Your poem was meant to be a complex double portrait of both the black caregiver and your white grandmother and the racist logic and history that bound them both. Did you, a young white person, the child of people you freely admitted had been shaped by racist beliefs, have any claim or relationship to this voice? Our workshop worried this question for an hour without resolving it. And while our discussion never devolved, as I worried it might, into open hostility, it also didn't make anyone feel better for having participated in it, nor did it settle the question your poem raised to anyone's satisfaction. You still wanted an answer, you said. Frankly, so do I. I could tell by your subdued demeanor when you approached me that you were afraid your poem had caused pain and that there might be some future, perhaps public, fallout for it. Perhaps there will be. I assume there won't because your classmates took the poem and you with pretty good humor, respect, and patience, even when they disagreed, sometimes vehemently, with the poem itself. All of us acknowledge that authorial intentions don't finally matter to how we read a creative work that fails, but what does it mean for a poem like yours to fail exactly? 
And what are the implications if we said your poem had succeeded? When we write in the voice of people unlike ourselves, what do we risk beside the possibility of getting certain facts, histories, and perspectives wrong? And was your poem to certain audiences perhaps always meant, if not to fail, then to be seen as an ethical lapse? You should know how many other students I've taught over the years whose work has raised the same question, X. You should know, too, how much I respect the ways you took your classmates' criticism during our discussion. You didn't lash out or sulk. You didn't try to justify or explain anything away. You sat and listened, perhaps the hardest thing to do when a group of strangers ponders whether your words and images, and by implication you, are inherently racist. Your desire to get it right, as you expressed yesterday afternoon, was everywhere evident in your response to our classmates' concerns, and it requires that I now find the right essay to address your question around the ethics of creative expression. While I have a number of articles and books I recommend reading, I can't think of one that speaks to a young writer trying to probe the limitations of imagination, one who is both open-minded about the question of appropriation and also reasonably terrified. I know when you and other students ask me for such an essay, you're asking if I can find the single argument that would either rationalize or dismiss the practice. You're asking you how cultural appropriation is generally defined. There's think it's always wrong, whether it's been done well before in literature and how. This is an essay I imagine the other students in our class would want to read after our conversation. It's an essay that I, as a writer, have never found. Like many writers today, I believe writing in the voice of someone outside my subject position surely crosses a line, but which one exactly? Writing is mastered over the course of a life, and perhaps you suspect the truth of mastery, which is that it's achieved by both practicing and unlearning the lessons teachers like me drill into you at school. Lessons that, while they lay the groundwork for producing good stories and poems, prove insufficient for creating our greatest work, which often disrupts the messages we've been taught. As writers, we absorb much of our technique through reading, more so than through class discussion. And yet books too fall short when it comes to determining just what is the right kind of appropriation to attempt, since so much of writing is appropriative and so much of appropriative writing is historically contextualized. Here is where the workshop might've stepped in with good advice, but as you yourself have seen, people would rather gnaw the fingers off their own right hand than talk through the tangled arguments around cultural appropriation. Because what we're really talking about with cultural appropriation X is identity. And while we all have identities, few of us are prepared to unravel the Gordian knot of social realities, history and fantasy that constitute itself and its attendant ideas of race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, or even physical or mental ability let alone discuss what an accurate representation of any of these selves would look like on the page. And the more you and I think about identity, the more we might discover that cultural appropriation is less a question of staying in one's lane, as one of your classmates put it, than an evolving conversation we must have around privilege and aesthetic fashion in literary practice. So this whole book came about um, as an accident. I did not actually want to or expect to write a book about cultural appropriation, but what had happened was um, a poem that uh, I, I talk about in the book by Anders Carlson We called How To had been published in The Nation. And there was this enormous pile on, um, this poem written by a young white middle-class poet who um, is writing in the voice of a homeless person who may or may not be African-American, may or may not actually um, be male. We don't quite know. And this poem was published to first wide acclaim and then a lot of vitriol as people were like, he doesn't have any right to this voice, not from his class position, not potentially from his racial position, not even from his regional position because people were like, is this person from Appalachia? Is this person from the South? This The writer isn't. So it raised all these questions. and. I kind of got online and I, you know, did the thing that no one really should do online, which is state my opinion. And, you know, and I, but afterwards I sort of said, you know, um, what we might want to think about is when someone offers an apology, we, we take that apology seriously. And it, it also created a lot of anger and stuff like that. But an editor from Norton, you know, reached out to me and she said, would you like to write a book about cultural appropriation? And I thought, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah. um, that sounds like a terrible idea, especially in this, in this very fraught moment where we're all trying to figure out the right way to navigate the, all of these, you know, what feels like for many people, very new rules around identity and um, creative engagement. 
but then I was like, you know, I've, if I was really honest with myself, I have to admit for the last 25 years, I've been teaching writing workshops and being in literary spaces and having exactly this conversation. And no one's ever just sort of sat down and really had it. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, I'd like to know, I'd like to know what I really think about cultural appropriation outside this knee jerk. Oh, that's right. That's wrong. Um, kind of thing. So I agreed to write the book and I decided to discard immediately that question of right or wrong. I think that that's the first mistake we all make with cultural appropriation is we just sort of say, you have to have a yes or no answer to this. Um, it's about staying in your lane. And, you know, we can't really stay in our lanes um, because all of us have very um, fluid, multiple multiple identities in a lot of different ways. Uh, myself, I'm biracial, um, yeah, I'm female, I'm feminist. Uh, I come from a very conservative family. So I, I see from their points of view, their point of view, I'm able-bodied, you know, and <laughs> you know, all these sorts of different ways. And, you know, it, it gives me different insights in the world. And I, I navigate the world, you know, in a very complex series of arrangements based on gender and my mixed race identity. Um, but, you know, I think all of us have these kinds of very fluid identities. And so, you know, if we don't have an, a, if we can't really make an argument about authentic or fixed identities, we also can't sort of say cultural appropriation or appropriation as a practice in literature is always wrong or always right. So the question really becomes not yes or no, it becomes what are the desires that are expressed when we see the performance of a self unlike the writer on the page, what does that performance tell us about the fantasies, the ideals we might have about certain identities? What is it that, um, that might be speaking back to historical tropes and stereotypes? What might be there on the page duplicating them? And that's a far more interesting kind of conversation um, because the reality is as writers and as artists, whether we want to or not, we are always encouraging ourselves to step into the perspectives and the forms, the artistic motifs of other cultures, of other periods of time. Yeah, that's, I, while making my way through the book, um, I I found, which, like I said originally, what you expanded upon here is there's so many different levels. There's so many different layers of what we talk about when we talk about cult cultural, cultural appropriation. Um, and, or, or literary appropriation. And that was what was so surprising to me. And the, the examples that you gave throughout to kind of examine these different levels. And I was, and this could take the rest of the podcast, which is okay, which is fantastic. <laughs> but, um, um, I, my favorite, ex well, my, the ones that struck me the most, you know, the ones, these, some of these were an absolute surprise to me that people had done this. Um, uh, others I'd known about, um, and others I, I could imagine. Right. Um, and so like, um, like I said, I was enlightened on so many levels. And first I was really educated on the vast differences of literary appropriation throughout the last century and the levels of it. Um, so we, I'm going to give four examples and you're welcome to jump into any four of these examples and kind of discuss where, where they fall on this level of appropriation and also yeah. kind of, before you jump in, though, I just want the readers to know when you pick this up that 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 Paisley is not giving like what she said in her intro. She's not saying this is right or this is wrong, but there is the, there is so much forgiveness and sympathy and empathy in this book for the right for some of these writers, uh, where myself in the first place probably would have said, yeah, that's absolutely wrong. Um, but um, so these are a few examples that if you want to jump into and look at the different levels of appropriation um, and how you view them. Um, so first of all was the Carlson Wee example, which I which we just we just discussed. Um, um, but secondly was the Laura Albert example, which I thought was really intriguing. Um, and the Yasusada example is that did I say that correctly? Yasusada. And then the Glenn Carroll Carrillo example. Um, those were yeah. four different types of appropriation. Um, like I said, in some of them, I was like so easy just to dismiss them, especially the, the you know, at the end, this, especially the Carrillo example, I almost jumped into just wow, he just took on this whole different identity. Um, and but that's not how the book ends, it ends so much more. I don't know. What's the word? It, it, hopeful with all of it. Um, so which, I mean, any of those, please jump in and just kind of lead our readers through it. Let me 
this is these are great examples to sort of pull up and so i'm sure most listeners aren't going to know about many of these examples because they're kind of obscure mm -hmm. each one but they represent larger sort of general trends um first of all when we use a term like appropriation in it, it there's so many different types and kinds of practices that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons i want to spend time teasing apart the different things that happen when we're talking about appropriation so that people can start to put this on a spectrum so so for instance, if any of you out there have ever written a poem that's a sonnet, that's actually technically an appropriative form because we got that out of Italy. Um, if you've ever written a villanelle or a pantoum, which is a Malaysian art form, you know, form of a poem, that's what we call motif appropriation, where we're taking uh, formal devices um, from another culture or a different artist and sort of reworking them with our own material. So hip hop artists use this all the time. Visual artists use this all the time too. It's usually sort of taking um, also one object out of a kind of context and placing another. So we have to relook at it, re-examine it. So, you know, like the famous Campbell's soup can, which becomes, you know, Warhol's big signature piece of art as an example of that. Then there's subject appropriation, which is when we're actually writing the voice of somebody else. So we're writing about the stories of somebody unlike ourselves. And a lot of literature traffics in that, right? Where you've written a short story, a read short stories where characters appear that are not, you know, the same embodiment of the author. That's a form of subject appropriation. Cultural appropriation, you know, uses some of these aspects, but also I think um, it's sort of the worst form of these appropriations because oftentimes it's about the wholesale taking of something from uh, usually a, another person or community that has been historically disempowered for the artist's own benefit and usually stripping away um, any sort of acknowledgement of the other original artist or community's uh, involvement. And so we see this like in museums a lot where you go in and you realize, hey, you know, like the Elgin marbles, which, you know, the British Museum has, has taken um, and sort of claims that they're going to be better stewards of this art, which is actually belongs to Greece than the, the Greeks or, you know, much African art that you'll see in museums in France. But then you see it in literature all the time. So um, some of the examples that you pulled out. Okay, so Araki Asusada is the Japanese fake name of a supposedly real Japanese poet who um, supposedly um, experienced the bombing of Hiroshima, survived it, but lost um, one daughter to radiation sister uh, sickness and another daughter in, in the blast. And it was actually a white poet named Kent Johnson who's never admitted it was him. Um, but all trails lead back to Johnson. And it's a question about like why he did that. I mean, that's a perfect example of a kind of cultural appropriation where, um, you know, the work that is produced is simultaneously there to take advantage, I think, and I argue finally, um, of an American uh, publication system that was sort of fascinated with the exotic. And it's a way of you know, being a kind of hoax, playing a prank on these, you know, on this publication system, because Johnson was a poet who felt that he had been sort of unfairly overlooked by a lot of avant-garde literary magazines. Mm -hmm. But in this guise, he could not only get published, but he could get a lot of acclaim. The Carrillo um, story is a different one, and I'm far more sympathetic to that because, um, you know, he's somebody who didn't he not only produced work um, as somebody different than himself, but he lived his entire life like that. Kent Johnson doesn't try to pretend that Araki Yasusada is alive. Um, it's a literary sort of alter ego um, that he has created for his own benefit. Uh, Hash Carrillo, from what I little I know of him, was an African-American man born in Detroit who was, um, was gay, but he pretended to be Afro-Cuban and uh, a Cuban emigre. And a, I think he was a prodigy, but he also sort of like made that up. And he wrote books uh, and short stories based on the idea of the Afro-Cuban immigration experience. Um, but what's different about Carrillo is that, you know, that work is culturally appropriative in the same way that Yasusada's is, but, but Carrillo wanted to live his entire life as this person. And in that case, the reason I have more sympathy for him is there is a suggestion, he didn't even tell his husband, for example, that this was not a real thing. I, I think that there was something about that identity that allowed him to exhibit or to live a more authentic or protected self than the one he had been born into. 
I'm very clear in the book that I don't think it's right what he did, but I also think that there's a question of a kind of psychological um, protection and a psychological need that goes far beyond <laughs> what Yasusada Ken Johnson was doing. And to a certain extent, I'm, I'm, I'm even though again, I, I disagree with Rachel Dolezal, who was a white woman who pretended to be African-American, I also feel a certain amount of sympathy for her based on the fact that it seemed as if she had associated whiteness with incredible abuse because her, her white biological family had been so abusive, not only to her, but to her adopted African-American um, siblings. So there was something, and she also devoted much of her life to supporting African-American kinds of causes. And she went to a historically black college, you know, she taught ethnic studies. Um, you know, do I think she's delusional? Yeah. Do I think she's wrong? Yeah. But I also think that there's something psychologically going on there that makes um, makes my take on some levels of, of appropriation a little bit more complex, which is, you know, there are examples of people reaching across cultural lines sometimes to find maybe better versions of themselves or to find something hopeful for them to aspire to be. Um, and it's, to me, it doesn't seem something only to castigate them for it. it I, I feel, I feel kind of bad that they have to imagine themselves in different bodies in order to embody the principles or the emotions that they themselves long to have. Um, but again, you know, is it right? No, it's, it's definitely not right. But I think it's also very human. And I think that's maybe where the note of a kind of um, hopefulness comes from, which is, you know, I, I want to also say that all of us are appropriating. I start from the, the perspective that all of us are engaged in different forms of appropriative practices, and it doesn't just work in one direction. It's not always the empowered that take from the disempowered. Sometimes who, those people we would imagine as historically disempowered reappropriate artistic forms to reimagine that 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 system that has kept them out. Kahindi Wiley, you know, his his artistic paintings are perfect examples of that where he allows African American men to choose these Renaissance paintings, usually of very famous, you know, powerful noblemen and women. Um, and say, you know, dress up as you will. Or, you know, he's gone and asked, you know, trans, um, you know, Asian Pacific Islander women to and have choose the kind of Gauguin paintings that they like. And then, you know, painted them to really display their own humanity, but to, to speak back to the very sources that he's appropriated. So appropriation, the use of these forms, the taking of these um, motifs, these subject matters, you know, these themes sometimes has a real political upside for the disempowered. I, I find that like horribly interesting in the sense, not just with liter literature or with art, but with life. Cause I think the title of that chapter with the Carrillo example, example is, um, you know, appropriation for survival. And, you know, that brings me back to, you know, stories that I've heard in my life as, and, and, and it's that opposite effect that where it's not always those with power who are appropriating not only in literature, but in life or to survive in the sense that I grew up with stories because my mom is Mexican American and I grew up with stories of my mom tossing her tortillas and bean lunches underneath the, the, underneath the bus here in Utah. She grew up in Utah in the 1950s and she didn't find out till 20 years later that my grandma Cordova would sit in the window and cry because my mom was basically just tossing her, her, her food under the bus and then using, you know, powder to whiten herself, uh, yeah. for school, um, throughout her life. And so, and I, and I feel that that's the opposite that you're talking about this, this, and then maybe that's assimilation instead of appropriation, but, um, yeah, it, um, but, um, it, but it, it, sometimes it is for survival. And like you said, to kind of be somebody in a place where, maybe you can live a better life. And I feel like I've talked to my mom about that and she's like, yeah, I mean, I just did everything I could to not be in, you know, in her words, not be Mexican in Utah in 1950. And, you know, I mean, and that's a really interesting point of view. And I, and after, when I get to, got to the end of that chapter, you know, I felt all that sympathy that you led us to with the Carrillo, um, example, um, in the fact that he was, you know, he was living a life to live a better life, and that if 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 he have 
if you have had lived it, you know how much appropriation is actually involved in that. Um, so, you know, I mean, um, I think, you know, you talked about a little bit earlier about, you know, how this whole book got started, which I find intriguing as well. And, and, um, you know, and, and I think there's something to what I want to, what I want to ask you too, is, is the, how quickly the vitriol comes when it comes to literature or poetry. Um, when somebody is seen as being appropriative, um, like, especially with Twitter, you know, I mean, Twitter is kind of the place where, you know, um, I'm scared to death of Twitter. You know, I used to actually engage in Twitter and now I just, well, I mean, I was angry for five years, right? I was angry. I was angry for really for five years. Um, and now I'm less angry, which is, which is actually really, really nice. Um, and so I was on Twitter a lot during that time, but I would, can you speak to either the harm or the benefits of having, you know, a social platform like that when it comes to um, literary appropriation? And obviously this is where this whole thing started, I'm guessing. Yeah, and it's a great question too, because, uh, you know, it is both. <laughs> the, I'll start with the benefits of Twitter and social media. We would not even be having, I think, nuanced or willing to have conversations around cultural appropriation were there not sort of pressure, I think, building that social media has amplified. Um, I know that 10, 15 years ago before Twitter really took off, there was this kind of um, de rigueur classroom attitude like, oh, the imagination is free. And that always is somebody who, as a woman who's mixed race, like that was exhausting to me. I was like, the imagination's actually not free. Imaginations are lodged in bodies and bodies exist in the world and they get treated in very particular ways. So, you know, we are have our imaginations politically and socially shaped from day one. So it's not as simple as sort of saying, I can just imagine what it's like to be black can't. Um, I can imagine what it's like to be human, but then I have to imagine what a black body does to that humanness in the world, like what that means. Um, and so like, I, I actually very much appreciate some of the, the, the ice water effect that Twitter has had on some of that, you know, it's made people a lot more conscious about the ways that imaginations are politically and socially shaped. Um, that's the, but that's the upside. The downside, I think everyone recognizes, which is you've got 208 now 80 characters to express yourself and the full range of ideas that we have are very complex. And the scolding elements of Twitter, the um, ways in which people want to take a side quickly, it's just not a, it's not a platform that allows for the kind of complex engagement around difficult ideas that I think we're all really hungry for. And the way that the algorithms work, they are designed, as, as one book title says, you know, they, they want to make us fight. They, you know, Twitter feeds off of this, this kind of um, negative engagement with each other. And so it has had a very chilling effect also, I find in classrooms where students before I might in workshop try to en encourage students not to write outside their subject positions automatically because I'm like, you know, get, get these skills under your belt first, think about what you're doing before you launch into something like this. But now um, students are so terrified of getting it wrong that they, they hesitate to even write about their own family members because they're like, I don't know, maybe that's appropriation. And so, in, so what's happened is that I think a lot of, of students feel like they can't necessarily see the classroom as a trusting and open space to fail. And the reality of art is that most of your work is failing. Um, that's where you get better. And that's how you learn. I failed. And I had the luxury of failing as a Gen X writer in a time and place where no one, no one outside that classroom, unless I got a Xerox copy of my poem was going to see it. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, you know, and I still make mistakes all the time, you know, and, and I think we need to get to a place where we recognize that I think about 99% of us don't make the mistake because we want to hurt someone. There's the, it's the rare person, you know, who is there trying to, shoot, there's my dog, trying to create a very racist portrait in order to make somebody's life painful right. and, and more difficult. And I think if we start with the idea that in fact, hey, 
um, people are trying this not out of spite, but out of imaginative, you know, desire for connection, then, then we have a place to, to have a conversation. Yeah, that's, I, um, and I think that the book, you know, I think that the book really delivers that, um, so well, because I think going in, you know, I think I expected something, I expected something different. Um, and mm. there was so much care given to all of these different examples and some such, sub, such, um, such deep dives into each of one, each of them to give, you know, to really look at them as examples and as people and as writers. And the book to me felt like that arc that you just kind of gave us that, you know, this is where we started. And then we're kind of, you know, if we really examine these things, we have so many more options than to just, you know, what Twitter gives us or what people, you know, strike out against. And that exact thing that you said that it, most people like me, they're just trying, we're just trying not to hurt other people. Um, and it's, it's that it's those few people. And especially it's like in the nonfiction realm, it's those few people who lie in their memoirs who hurt the rest of us, um, that we have to feel like we have to get everything absolutely correct because my main genre is, is, is memoir nonfiction, obviously that they hurt the rest of us, right. And the rest of us are, and art is being stagnated or stunted because of those those bad examples and that's what the book real the, the book really just dives so deeply into all of that and that kind of co- brings me to my last question we have we have 10 more minutes um and that is the that is the topic topic of genre and you did say at the beginning of the, of the podcast this is a craft book where i thought as a cultural analysis of literary appropriation that's how i was gonna say it but it is a craft book yeah. and but i i i um and that's the idea of genre and the way in which different genres throw different hurdles at writers when it comes to broaching mm-hmm. this. Um, as a nonfiction writer, uh, if, if anyone's read my work, um, I know my mom has, um, that I, I can write about my Mexican-American background, my grandparents, how they were my best friends, how that's the cultural life that I grew up in. And I can also write about how on my dad's side, it's, uh, it's LDS, uh, Utah. They, once he married my mom, we never, I never knew him never knew him again in my life. They just, they just kind of disowned him. And I had tried to write a book about, one day I started writing a book about uh, an LDS missionary, you know, and this is all, this your, 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 your book made this kind of explode in my mind on what I was doing. I tried to write a book about an LDS missionary and about 10,000 words into it, I had to stop because I knew the only thing I was doing was being vindictive. You know, I was using, <laughs> I was using stereotypes. I was making fun of the culture. Um, and it was not... And not only was I angry, I realized what I was doing, but also the, the, the writing was awful because I was, you know, I was trying to do something that was, um, it, the intent, like you said, was poor. The intent was vindiction. The intent was to make fun. And, um, I would never do that now, but the, your book kind of made that kind of appear to me. Like, why did that book go so wrong? And the reason why that book went so wrong is because of intent and care Mm -hmm. and looking at what, and making that LDS culture, um, the other, because I had always felt like the other in Utah and, and that's why the book failed. And now recently just with the new book, you know, I'm using my grandparents on my mom's side, the maternal side as my protagonist. And, you know, because I know them so well, that book just came out of me, you know, I mean, it's so simple because the intent is to show these people on the, these protagonists on the page as beautifully and as wonderfully and as hopefully as I possibly can mm-hmm. in the world. So my question is, I, sorry, that was a lot. That was my longest question. Uh, but with genre, like nonfiction is easy. You can say, well, this is my life. This is my nonfiction. This is the story my mom told you, like the one I just told you. That's real. You know, people can't. But with fiction, it seems more difficult, you know, um, because, you know, you have to you have to make things up, obviously. And with poetry, I don't know. I'm not a poet. I'm scared of poetry. I think only smart people are poets. Um, so with genre, what hurdles, I mean, which one do you think is probably the hardest? Um, if that's, if that's, a, if you can quantify that or, or what are the different hurdles that each genre may, might give an, an artist when it comes to this? I think that's a great question and, and it's going to be hard to answer because to a certain extent, one of the things that is 
frustrating about genre, and it doesn't matter which genre you work in, even though fiction should be, and poetry should be the most explicitly imaginative in our historical understanding of them. The reality is most readers still have this idea that all writing <laughs> ends up being somehow autobiographical. And um, at hmm. some point, what people are looking for is a kind of authenticity of um, experience and voice, which needs to be translated in ways that are recognized by that audience as authentic. And so it, in some ways, it doesn't matter whether it's nonfiction, poetry, or fiction. The problem isn't genre so much as maybe the paucity of, um, of diversity within publishing itself, which means, you know, we tend to place these kinds of limitations and burdens on writers to produce authentic voices when we have fewer examples of them in the marketplace, whether it's the arts marketplace, you know, on our TV sets and our bookstores. And so if those, uh, those representations, whichever genre that is, it match up to what we've already seen before as this is the black experience this is the asian experience this is the latinx experience if it doesn't match up to that expectation you'll have people angry um either they'll be like this doesn't sound like something i know mm -hmm. or they'll be like you're not representing us well we're more likely to be able to have full fully rounded difficult complex characters when we're not allowed to, when we're not forced to present our best selves you know at every twist and turn because there are so few examples of you know of of us out there and i think that that's why that question of cultural appropriation gets so tricky because ultimately it's not you can't wrest away the artistic argument from basically an economic reality mm -hmm. um you know that these are tied together so even if you can approximate or imagine in any genre the experiences of someone unlike yourself uh historically and in the marketplace there's a completely different set of rules out there. So you could produce something wonderful and it could still become something that people recoil from angrily. Hmm. But I will say that I think, <laughs> and this is sort of only half a joke. The thing about poetry is that poetry, because it moves through such symbolic language all the time, people are kind of, as readers, maybe a little more used to seeing the person on the page in a poem as not a real person already mm. so they might and also there's you know frankly real reluctance to read very deeply into poetry people get intimidated by it so i think i think people manage to escape it but mm -hmm. poets are <laughs> some of the angriest people around this question i find you know mm -hmm. that they're you know very very invested in uh, especially right now where you've got a lot of people writing very first person narrative um very first person confessional um autobiographical poems. And so authenticity right now is at a real premium in the poetry world. So people really want to know and believe and trust in who you are as a poet to sort of say, yeah, I believe you can say what you want to say. You can't speak for anyone else. Um, and, and I understand historically why that is the case. Well, thank you. Um, this is Case Johnston. This is the Literary Podcast. Uh, today we're talking with Paisley Rectal, the author of Appropriate. I I, uh, I, I picked that up. And, uh, a <laughs> or Appropriate, either one. <laughs> no, it no, it's really fantastic. For, re just released from Norton. And like I said at the beginning of the podcast, it's probably, of the books I've read in the last five or six or ten years, it's probably been to me the most, um, let's just say it's kind of opened my eyes to a lot in a way that I hadn't seen it before, especially on this this subject matter, and it's it's done with such uh, with with such it's written with such a delicate, uh, sincere, um, researched hand that if you want to think about this idea much deeper than what's on Twitter or what people what the news gives us or what those bad fellows who put us all in bad situations with the things that they do. This is a great, this is a fantastic book that I think you should pick up um, for your classroom as well as uh, for yourself as a writer. So we five minutes. You, if there's anything we didn't touch on, that I mean, this book could honestly, I, this we could talk about this book for another four hours, I believe, easily. But um, anything you'd like your reader to know uh, before we sign off? 
No, not really, though. I'm I'm really struck by some of the stories that you were telling about your own family, actually. And it's funny because both you and I have, we have very different experiences, but both of us come from, you know, mixed race, mixed cultural backgrounds and things like that. And I actually wonder if that has, you know, one of the reasons why I've been so sympathetic to some of the, um, what we consider the racial hoaxes mm -hmm. a little bit, because I don't know how you feel about this. So it's a question to you, really. Um, sometimes I felt like I'm forced to perform a various, various forms of identity that I know I encompass many different types and kinds, but I'm not, um, I'm not always sure that what I'm performing or what I am isn't in itself something kind of fake. <laughs> and I'm just kind of curious, like how you feel about maybe your own identity and um, and how you think that, that that mixed race identity has affected your perception of authenticity. It's it's a it's a great question, and it's stuff something I think about every day. Um, Mo, I would say half of my nonfiction is about that answer, trying to answer that question for myself. Um, saying that, who did I grow up with? What family did I grow up with? And that's who I know. And that is the maternal, the maternal side. Um, and that is the Cordova Chavez side. And I say, I always say Cordova Chavez because on my, for my grandma's generation, four Cordovas married four Chavez's in Southern Colorado, Northern New Mexico. And so my mom always mixes up who's on which side. Oh so they have to like, so, the, you know, I always have yeah. to ask like, is that grandpa's side or grandma's side? She's, my mom always says, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I don't know. They're all mixed together anyways. Um, um, but yeah, no, I think so. I think that that's why to me it's so, why the question is so important. Um, and to me it's not performative in the sense, I feel that it's more always trying to claim it. Um, yeah, and that's hard yeah, that's with, um, with the, with my last name Johnston and, you know, you'd never, you'd, you know, unless, you know, um, I openly talk about it, which I don't like, um, because my fear is always, I don't want to take up space where maybe somebody else needs that space. Um, and that's what, yeah, no, that, I get you yeah, on that. <laughs> and that's what I fear. Yeah. But with my last name Johnston, you know, I have to literally tell people, well, my mom is actually Mexican American. And so and I, that's, that's my family. But I feel like I feel like it's more of a claim, even with my right, especially with my writing, with the nonfiction. Obviously, it's it's a deep kind of search for identity and where do where do I belong in Utah? You know, where my dad's side was very strict Mormon. They were they were they were missionary. My grandparents were missionary presidents, and um, my dad left the church. And you know, you know, and it's like I don't even know that side, which goes back to the story about trying to write about a missionary. I I tried, but it it was it was so it was it was immature it was vindictive um and i know that now you know like you said we learn we're learning every day um but that's i think that's where maybe that is partly why it's you know the question of it all is so intriguing uh to me personally sure yeah i think i think what happens you kind of know when you're inappropriate like the negative appropriative territory when you're trying to make the external represent internal values, mm -hmm. right? Um, whether that's a Mormon missionary, like because they take this identity form in this way, they must display these particular kinds of values at all times. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when we have that around race and ethnicity, that's oftentimes when it really kind of goes off the rails where we, we want people to reflect interior states that they just that it has no necessary or inherent tie mm -hmm. to race or culture. But yeah, no, I, 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 what you said really rings true for me as well, because with a name like Paisley Rackdahl, I mean, it signals to the Norwegian side, but it doesn't signal to um, anything Chinese. Mm -hmm. um, and I can visually pass, I think, to a lot of people as a white woman or at least maybe someone Italian. For some reason, people like think Italian a lot. Same here, everybody, and, same, exactly the same, Italian. Yeah. <laughs> Italy is the this, this, this sort of universally recognized space of like no one knows what they are. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah, but it is it is interesting. Um, so I, I feel like you do too, is, which is that I'll talk about it openly. And for me, for two reasons, um, you know, oftentimes to kind of head people off at the pass, like if they're mm -hmm. going to make some racist comments, they need to know who they're standing in front of first. Mm -hmm. So I'm almost trying to do it, not just to protect myself, but to sort of like protect them. Like, you know, whatever's going to come out of your mouth, you need to know that I'm not necessarily a white person in front of you. Mm -hmm. But then also I feel like my role is also to, like, to be in the background a lot. 
um, to, to, to let other people, you know, I, one of the things that I think is underpinning this book for me finally is that, you know, I, I know that a lot of writers of color teach in workshops and they have to be that person. Mm. And um, that's just a lot of work and it's, it's awful. Or, or there's like the one or two students of color in the class and they have to be that voice. And for me, I, this is a service project book for me. Cause I was like, let me just write something so that if somebody gets it, they don't have to, you know, they can point to this book or they can just read off of this and I can be the voice that they don't have to be that person in mm -hmm. the class, you know, yeah. because it's exhausting. And it, I mean, I've seen students be really demoralized in these conversations or writers at workshops, you know, feel like, oh, I have to be the scold. I have to be the moralizing one. Mm -hmm. So I figured, you know, if, if it can make anyone's life just a little bit easier, then, then I'm happy to do it. Yeah. No, anyway. it's a fantastic book. Right. Um, and, you know, all of us Italians someday need to get Thank together you. and, you know, have have some coffee and talk about it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, yeah, so I feel exactly the same way you do about so much of it. And so, I mean, that personal side of the book touched me quite a bit, but that's, you know, with the podcast, I, I you know, I wanted to talk about, you know, not my personal stuff, but... Uh, but, but your stuff, but I'm glad you asked. I, I, I appreciate it. So this is Case Johnson, Literally Podcast. We're podcasting from the Monarch in Banyan One, Banyan One on Historic 25th Street. And Paisley, you should really just come, jo <laughs> you should come join. We're actually starting a poetry reading. So Brandon does this van sessions every first Friday where there's live bands and he records and right here in the Monarch. And we are actually starting, me and Abe and Laura Stott and Sonny, uh, Wilkinson are all study, starting a um, poetry reading between the two bands. So at 745 to 8 p.m., there's oh, going to be, bad. yeah, so because Brandon, yeah. Brandon brings in a lot of people with the van sessions. It's probably the most popular thing for our fr first Friday art stroll. And um, so if you ever have a first Friday of the month that you'd want to come down and read, uh, we would absolutely love to have you. I'll send you an email with just that reminder. So I think we're studying. We're starting this month with Megan Elise, and then after that is going to be Sunny because she's got her new book coming out. Um, and then oh, Laura, and then Abe, and then I think Willie Palamo is going to come come read after that. But then in the fall, we're you're still going for the fall, aren't you? Year round. Year round now, because you took some months off last year. I'm going next May. Okay, yeah. yeah. So anytime in the fall, um, <laughs> we'd love to have you. It's 15 minutes of just reading poetry to a larger audience, and that's our goal, right? I mean, especially with the art, art, uh, art stroll is like I said at the beginning. A lot of the visual arts is so easy, but um, you know we want to get our literary artists out there. So mm. I'll write you um, and and remind you. I'd love to. Okay, and if we want, we can actually we'll pencil it okay. in. Um, and I'll, I'll loop in Sonny and Abe and everybody together right. for that. But, well, thank you so much for joining us. I looked forward. I, I'm so glad that we were able to do it because I was looking forward to talking to you a lot. Um, so I'm so glad you were able to join us today. And good luck with the rest of your meetings. That doesn't sound fun. We're doing our bourbon, books, and beer podcast tonight. So I'm just going to be drinking. So there we go. Thanks again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's great. Thank Thanks, you again for this. This is great. Thanks, Paisley.